Well, hello, everyone, and uh, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. I hope you feel that way about your Bible today. And um, as we are going into Acts chapter 9, probably one of my personal favorites. I love this story. But um, to go back a little bit of last week, I want to make sure that we see that even because of the the death of Stephen and the church was being persecuted, it, but it caused it to go in areas where um, Jesus had said the gospel was to go. So how the Lord will use suffering in many ways for our good. But I want to make sure you have seen this. In last week's lesson, after we saw how the church was scattering and Philip and the deacons and the apostles were all going in different directions, we couldn't help but notice that there is such a difference between real and phony. A real relationship with Jesus or one that you just know the facts about, like I say, believe in your head. And when you believe in your head, the reaction, the the um your your whole personality, everything, um is is affected by by whether you believe in your head or your heart. Now, when you believe with your head, you might have the numbers and facts and, and really even details. You might have that down. But unless you believe from your heart, remember how we have talked about you, you not only confess with your mouth, but you believe in your heart. It's got to be the heart. It's where, it's what really reigns. It's what really controls us. And we saw such a powerful chapter last week of what it looked like when you only believed with your head. And so when Simon the sorcerer, when he believed, it said he believed and was baptized you know, you can go around and fool people. And, you know, the idea, believe it or not, is not to fool people. The whole idea of the gospel is that Jesus becomes real to you and he changes your life. It's not about fooling people and making you look good and Christian and all that. That's what we've got to get to the bottom of. Are we real? Or are we just playing on religion? I mean, this is really a concern. I'm sure you can tell it's a real concern of mine this week from this past lesson and then this lesson of today. But there's just so... When, we, when you live in a community like we do, when there's churches on every corner, when religion is, is just one of those things that... Well, I think we're seeing it less and less, but it was just a natural thing you said. You're a religious person, but but at this time, the tanner, it was it's just so obvious to me that you can believe and yet miss it all. And sure enough, I mean, it came out in his actions, and and all of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit came upon the people, then the Simon goes up to Peter and says, "Oh, I'd like to buy some of that. 
you do that? Here, let me write you a check. And Peter said to him, may your money perish with, with you. You thought you could buy the gift of God. And boy, he really made sure that we saw, and whoever told Luke, Luke wanted us to know that there are people going around who can fool everybody. But you're not fooling yourself, and you're not fooling the one who really matters. And how can you tell if you're really phony or if you're real? Take a look. Just take a look at your life. Take a look of, uh, at what, what has happened, what, you, what you've been like, what you are now. Has Jesus and his gift of salvation, has it done anything to change you? And now we are going to see in today's lesson what it looks like when he can take a life that it looks impossible, yet look, look, so religious. They didn't come any more religious than the member of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisee of all Pharisees, Saul. Now, when, when you see what has transpired in his life, again, I go back to last week's lesson, you want to know what beautiful real looks like? When Philip is, is responding to the Holy Spirit's leading and he doesn't care about, about his so-called name, he just wants to be used of the Lord Jesus, the one who saved him. He was willing to go down a deserted road, but there he met an Ethiopian eunuch. And he went to that man and heard him, him studying Isaiah 53 and didn't know what he was studying. And Philip shared with him, gave him the plan of salvation. And this Ethiopian eunuch responded, that's real. When, when Jesus changes your life, you know that he's real. And the whole idea of the gospel is working in your life. If you don't see change, if you can't see more love and more joy and more peace and more patience and more kindness and more goodness and more faithfulness and more gentleness and more self-control than this Spirit of God is not being able to do his work in you. And maybe you are just plain religion. Maybe you're just believing with your head and you haven't allowed confession and repentance and surrender take over your life. Those three words are so hard for human beings. Confession, that means I'm not right. Repentance means I'm not right and I want to admit. And then the word surrender. Lord Jesus, in view of what you've done for me, I offer myself back to you. And then you allow his spirit to start day by day changing you. Can you see anything? Can you see any difference? 
Well, here's a case today in today's lesson as we move into the ninth chapter. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Now, this is one angry, violent, religious man. And it's almost ironic to put those words together. Angry, violent, religious man. See, he had religion, but he didn't have Jesus. And the beautiful picture of this story, why I think I love it so much, is that because we have a Savior who can look ahead, he knew what, what Saul's potential was. He knew that once he got a hold of Saul's heart, he would be a compliant vessel. But in the meantime, Saul, his Jewish name, he is, he is so he is so adamant about getting rid of the way. Now, that's what they called the new Christians. They called that group of people the way. He went to a high priest and he asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he did find any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He was, I mean, you can't help but see, he was angry, he was determined, he was violent, he was religious, he was so zealously right, he thought. And yet he was missing it all. He was breathing out murder, murderous threats. And you know that way, when I look at that term, the way, it was so much more than just rules and, and legalities and doctrines. And these people, their lives were being changed and it was more, it was more, it was spreading because it was a new way of living. See, when it's real, you watch yourself turn from being religious into a relationship with a Savior who wants you and I to live in love and in joy and in peace and in patience. I could go through those nine fruit time and time again because that's the character we should be looking like and wanting and desiring to be. And the way they they were more concerned about what does what does what's coming out of my heart. They know that they put Jesus in it, and now the Holy Spirit is working in their heart, changing their heart, and they are their their whole their whole life, their new way of living. And the thing is, it's spreading. This way of life is, well, Jesus called it abundant life. 
He called himself the way, the truth, and life. Do you know that you really remember last week we talked about the word joy? When people were finding Jesus, there was joy. When the Ethiopian eunuch got saved, he rejoiced all the way back to Ethiopia. You don't know those words. You don't know the definition of those words. You don't really know the nine fruit of God's spirit. You don't understand those words until you have met and begun a relationship with the author of those words. Only Jesus can give you real love. Only Jesus can give you real joy. Only Jesus can give you real peace. And here is a man who, again, is so religiously right that yet in contrast, because he's so phony, he doesn't even realize it, he's, he's just breathing out murderous threats. Well, when he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul. He called his name twice. It's kind of like when Jesus said, Martha, Martha. It's kind of like when Jesus said, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. It was said in deep emotion, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked the question, who are you, Lord? Now in the King James Version, it not only says that Paul asked the question, who are you, Lord? But he also asked the question, what do you want me to do? I like that. I like that, that we see those two questions that every one of us needs to answer. Who are you, Lord? Who are you in my life? Are you really Lord in my heart? Or have I just known about you in my head because it really hasn't made a big difference? And then the second question is, what do you want me to do? Now we know that Paul, when he wrote his letters later, in fact, in Philippians 3.10, you can tell that, that Paul, when he asked that question, who are you, Lord? What do you want me to do? When he wrote to the people in Philippi, when he was in prison, he wrote this in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul was a smart man, very educated. So once he came to know Jesus, he wanted to know this Christ. And the 
power of the resurrection and the power of the suffering. He wanted to experience what Jesus experienced. He wanted all that Jesus offered him. Well, when he asked the question, who are you, Lord, and what do you want me to do? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I mean, this is quite a sight if you picture. I mean, I get excited because... The church is moving. The doors are opening. And it's difficult times. Does that remind you of another time that you might be living in? But you can look through the, through the, the glasses of doom and gloom or you can look through them through scripture and watch how scripture is proved that God does his best work sometime when we think that things look hopeless. Or if things aren't complying the way you think they should. So, here is Jesus pouring out his emotion to Saul. He's telling Saul, this is, uh, you are persecuting me. I am Jesus. Now I want you to get up. Why did he have to get up? Well, this light was so bright and it caused him to fall to the ground. Now remember, he's been highly educated and he's quite a somebody in the world's, in the religious eyes. But whenever you come to Jesus, everyone needs to be humbled. Everyone needs to know themselves the way they really are. Even Saul needed, needed to drop to the ground. And he was humbled. I mean, so much to the fact that in verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes... I'm sure that light was so bright. What, what happens? What do we do when we usually see a terribly bright light? I mean, we just, we just you know, close our eyes tight. And so when he finally got himself standing up, he opened those eyes that he had shut so tightly, and he couldn't see a thing. So they led him by their hand, they led him by the hand into Damascus. Saul's men took Saul's hand. That, that had to be humbling. And they led him by the hand into Damascus for three days. He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Three days. How often don't we see that three days? For whatever reason right here, Saul cannot see and he 
cannot eat or drink, and he is sitting in the dark alone. What is a man who is highly religious, very smart, all of a sudden humbled to a pulp, but not to the ground. He can't see. He doesn't want to eat or drink. He sits there and he is thinking, what kind of life do I have? What has it done for me? Where has it gotten me? What has it done for anyone else? All of a sudden, he has time to think and get his eyes off himself and maybe take a good look about the direction he was heading. Oh, these are hard times. No one, no one likes these kinds of times. No one loves to be humbled to the ground. No one loves to confess and repent that maybe they haven't been so right after all. But these are Jesus' terms. Every one of us needs to come to that point. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. For he is praying. Now for a religious man, should that be something that, de- why, why was that detail? Why did the person who told Luke make sure that Luke wrote this down? Maybe it was Paul himself telling Luke, I heard him say, I heard him talk to me. And then Ananias told me that he talked to him and gave him specific instructions. Whoever told Luke, Luke is writing it down in detail. And this is one of the details that that we must see for Saul was praying. You know, I, I can't help but think about the word prayer and how deceived or confused that we've all gotten with that word. I think we've all got to believe that if we can say enough words or get enough people to agree with us that we can come to the Lord with our request and and be guaranteed we get what we want. I'm sure that Saul has quoted, said many, many prayers. I'm sure he has, I bet he was such a good prayer. Oh, I bet it was eloquent. But I think this is the first time that Saul prayed. You can say prayers, but when, when, when was the last time you prayed? Because you know what? You know what the first 
prayer that Jesus hears you and I pray is the sinner's prayer. Oh, I'm sure he hears many things coming out of our mouth through the past years and years. But the first prayer that he hears is that prayer when we come to him in confession and repentance and surrender. That word prayer, that is not just something you do. It is a connection that you have with the heart of God. When his spirit and your spirit are connected, that's why we can ask anything in the name of Jesus and we can be guaranteed it because when our hearts are the same and when they're connected, we want what he wants. We will never pray again for something without saying, but your will be done. I want nothing less than your will. I'm sure many eloquent prayers were prayed by a religious leader named Saul. And now he's humbly sitting on the ground blind, not eating or drinking. He is now praying. His life is starting to change because he is now willing to look at himself the way he truly is. You know what, he, he's praying and it's not mechanical. He's praying and it's probably the first time he ever had Jesus as a mediator. He's praying and it's probably the first time he's praying in Jesus' name. And it's the first time he's praying with a humble heart. Oh, his life is starting to change. In verse 12, in a vision he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. The Lord was telling Ananias, I'm already given Saul the vision of you coming. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done in your saint, to your saints in Jerusalem. And that word saints, see it a couple times in the chapter. Do you consider yourself a saint? I know in our minds we think saint means somebody who's perfect, but saint means a follower of Jesus. And so when Ananias answered, and he said, I've heard about this man. I've heard the reports. I heard that he even came here to Damascus with the authority of the high priest himself to arrest whoever called on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, I mean, the Lord understood, obviously, that Ananias is a little nervous you want me to go to this man? But the Lord said to Ananias, you go with that exclamation point, go. 
This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before people, the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is a mouthful. This man is my chosen. And you, you first look at him and all his religiosity, and he's out to destroy Christians. And then you see him it just plain sitting there blind, not eating or drinking. And, and then you hear the words of God saying, this is my chosen instrument. See, this is where I look at that verse in, in Corinthians where Paul himself writes, 5.17, when he writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, when he says, because I try to imagine, when did Paul start realizing, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. God had a plan for Paul. He was going to have to do a lot of work on him. But have you ever, I thought to myself as I got into this, I thought, you know, after 68 years of living, and I look back now on my life, and you, can, you can't help but see how God's plan, and yet it all started for me on well, I'm sure there was many other details before, but how uh, this is how extraordinary. The Lord had a plan that uh, when I was 68 that I would be doing this lesson and you would be listening and I would be speaking with such intensity because I believed it so much. Well, it had to start somewhere. And it almost made me laugh because you're looking at you're looking at Saul right now and you think, and he's the one that's going to carry Jesus' name to the Gentiles, to their kings, and to the people of Israel? Oh, boy, is there a lot of work that's got to be done. But see, that's what Jesus does. He changes your life. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. And I couldn't help but think of that day when Aunt Bertha came in, and I'm only seven years old, and Aunt Bertha comes in, and she says, Linnell, would you give us your testimony? I don't even know what the word testimony means. And I am just shaking feeling so inadequate and so humbled. And she knows it. And she is not mean. She wants to teach me. She wants me to start on a new path. Because the Lord probably had whispered in her ear that this little seven-year-old was going to teach Bible study someday. Oh, a lot of work had to be done. But that's what he does best. So when she looked at me and said, Linnell, do you love Jesus? I said, yes, I do. Linnell, is that why you want to sing? You want to use your voice for Jesus? And I said, yes, I do. And then she said, everybody, let's rejoice. What a beautiful testimony. And everybody clapped. That started me on a new path. God's got a plan. He had a plan for me at seven years old.
And yes, he had a lot of work to do. And I look back on my life, and I've got a really good friend who, who knows quite a bit about me because I don't, I don't share much, and I don't wear my life on, um, on my, on my shoulders. Because I don't like, I don't like settling in on, on problems and negativity. I love settling in on solutions and how Jesus can take brokenness and take and take broken pieces and make something beautiful out of it. That's the message. That's the message I have seen in my own life, and I. Believe with all my heart that that's what scripture has for us too. Don't constantly be talking about the problems. Be looking, be, be watching for your solution. Oh, he's always there. But this friend of mine, she knows so much about me and she says, I'm so sorry you had to go through this or I'm so sorry this happened to you or, or they, she would say these and yeah, it, it's nice to hear someone care about you. But I don't think that I have ever answered her with any other answer but this. The Lord knew what I needed. And because of that, it got me to where I am today. The Lord knows. In fact, look what he says. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I know we don't want to hear that, but that's what makes us into what we are in Christ. It's those hard times where you realize you can and your hands fly up and all of a sudden you recommit or you rededicate or you surrender again and you offer yourself Yes, as a living sacrifice back to him. The Lord knows, and he, he looked at this, he trying to convince Ananias, you're going to see this mess of a man here. Oh, I had to break him. He thought he was really quite something. Religious-wise, he really did. I had to knock him right to the ground. But he started thinking. He started realizing it isn't about me. It's about the one who can change me. The Lord breaks to remold. The Lord breaks us and so that we get broken of self so he can remold us into himself. I remember when Chad was going into the Marines and, and he was at boot camp and I'll never forget him telling us one night when he called is that, uh, boy, there's some here that just are so stubborn they don't want to be broken and that is what the Marines do. They break the, the guys down so that they can reform them into the kind of military men that, that's necessary to make them strong and brave. And I remember Chad says, boy, I learned quick, just break quick, just, just break quick. Because they will break you. And, and, I, and I couldn't help but think of that when I was reading this. Because the Lord is not out to be mean, just like the military is not out to be mean. But they know what we need. They know what kind of soldiers we need. 
And Jesus knows what kind of Christians he needs out there to be able to be brave and strong. And so he knows that he has to put us through things where we are so convinced. We are so sure that he knows what he's doing with our lives. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. And he said, Brother Saul, look at brother, brother. Now all of a sudden, we're brothers in the Lord. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again. That you may see Maybe physically, but more so than physical sight, is spiritual sight. And now that Paul is going to be able to say that he personally confessed, repented, and surrendered to this Lord Jesus, the one and only Messiah, all of a sudden he is going to be able to see and immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. So maybe literally his scales came off his eyes and he could physically see again but oh, 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 is he on his way to having his spiritual eyes changed. And then we, we read about how um, what happened to him after Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, if you ever want to know, he Paul pretty much in Galatians chapter 1, he pretty much tells when he's writing to the people of Galatia what happened during the time where he was converted, when he was saved, to when he actually began his ministry to the Gentiles as the Apostle Paul. In Galatians 1, starting with verse 11, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Boy, that's something to say, isn't it? After he's been so taught and educated for all those years. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. 
Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter, stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea and our, that are in Christ. They, they only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Chapter 2, verse 1. 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. So just so you know that... After Paul spent days with the disciples in Damascus, just kind of in the sideline, right? Galatians 1, 11 through chapter 2, verse 1. And that's when he, there's amount of time and space between. At once, he did begin to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? So Saul did start, once he was converted, he did start preaching in the synagogues. I give him credit for that. Boy, he was going, he was going to make sure... But timing, timing wasn't quite right yet. The Lord had to do some, some real work on Saul's heart. Verse 22, yet Saul did grow more and more powerful and it baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. See, this is where Galatians 1 really takes hold. You can start seeing the different, the different times. When he came back to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not because, not believing that he really was a disciple, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told him how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarshish. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Paul probably was gone 15 years or so, a little more. And he might have been back and forth a little bit, but the Lord was molding him and getting him ready for the opportunity for this gospel now to reach into the uttermost parts of the earth. And I'll tell you, Gentile territory would be classified the uttermost parts of the earth. Again, I'm reminded of Barnabas and Ananias, people in our lives that, can you look back and just, you're so grateful that people right 
person, right place, right time, how the Lord just put them in your life so that you too could have scales that came off your eyes so that you could develop a closer, more personal walk with the Lord Jesus. But becoming Christ-like does take time and it does take work and effort. And so now we're just kind of leaving Paul in Tarshish now, as the Lord is working on him, getting him all prepared and ready, we go back to Peter. As Peter, verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. Remember how everybody used to come to Jerusalem? And now you're watching the apostles reach out, and Peter traveled from where he was in Jerusalem to Lydda, probably about 35 miles, and there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, take care of that mat of yours. Immediately, Aeneas got up, and those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Again, I must keep reiterating, never once does Peter take credit for what he is doing. Aeneas, verse 34, repeat, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. So anytime you are tempted to think, oh, I wish there were apostles around. I wish Peter would come and he just like, no, Peter would say that God's power is the same today to heal just like it was back then. God has a way of healing physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He knows how to heal and he's the only one who can heal. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which was translated to Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. You know, one of those ladies that was always in the kitchen, she was always serving. She didn't need any pomp and circumstance. In fact, she probably would have felt so uncomfortable if somebody introduced her. She loved working in the, she liked working in the back. But look, I mean, if, you think people don't notice. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. Oh, they loved her. She was the real deal. It wasn't about her. It was about the fact that her life had been changed and she wanted to serve in whatever capacity. And because of that, you're loved. You're just loved. When you are real, you are loved. Peter sent them all out of the room. 
And you know, when you think about it, you don't know whether they really believed that Peter was going to be used by the Lord Jesus himself to raise her from the dead or, or whether they just... You know, maybe they called him when she had quite, when not quite, when she hadn't died yet, or maybe they called Peter just to be a source of comfort. We don't really know the extent of their belief, but the Lord was gonna, He was gonna show up again. Turning toward the dead woman, He said, "Tabitha, get up." She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and that presented her to them alive. That must have been a moment to be able to present Dorcas to all of her friends. This became known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. And then verse 43 Verse 43, like I said before, this chapter is so exciting because it does prove that the doors are opening and there is nothing that can stop the gospel and how the Lord can change us to be able to be a part of that mission. Because we've watched him, how the Lord is changing and breaking and remolding and recreating, actually. Because it's Paul himself that, like I said, wrote, I'm a new creation. See, the gospel doesn't just take the old and make it better. When, what salvation does is it, he, creates, he creates a whole new person, a whole new creation. And now you're going to see how the Lord is starting to take this message to the Gentiles. And he is going to use a couple of the most unlikely men to do that job. Because when I read verse 43, Peter stayed in Joppa for some time. Because, you know, along with the miracles that the Lord did through Peter and Philip. And the Lord himself was doing the miracle. He was just using their hands and body and that kind of thing. But while he was, while the Lord was using miracles, believe me, if you think for one second that Peter wasn't preaching that John wasn't preaching, that Philip, well, we know he was preaching. So along with the visuals, believe me, the word of God was going forth. And so Peter stayed there in Joppa. I'm sure he had much to preach. And, but he stayed in the most unlikely person's home but again look at how how detailed how meticulous the Lord is opening up his doors Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a 
tanner named Simon. A tanner was someone that worked with dead animals. And there probably wasn't anything more unclean for a Jew than to be near a person who worked with dead animals. And there is Peter staying with him. Oh, how the Lord loves to open doors of our life. Oh, he will open a huge one next week. But just think about it. Think about your own life. Not just that you learned a lot of new facts or we went over the same kind of stories again and again. No, this is, these lessons are to make you and I think about our own relationship Do I really have a grip on what suffering is doing for me? Am I allowing suffering to change me? Am I real? Am I genuine? Do I walk really what I talk? Can I see change from the way I used to be to the way I am now? Can I really claim 2 Corinthians 5.17 the way Paul can claim it? I'm sure Paul walked in the door, he would be able to say to you and I, boy, do I ever know what I used to be. But do I ever know what he's changed me into? And then do you watch, do you watch how the Lord opens doors? How he never leaves He's got a plan for you and me as distinct as he had for the Apostle Paul. And maybe he's still in the middle of working it out. He's always working on us. Are we allowing him to work on us through his word, through his spirit? Do we really have a desire to want to look and be like Jesus and in every way possible. It's so easy to say yes, but the cost is high. But in view of what he's done for you, in view of what he has done for me, there is just no comparison. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us with such an unconditional love when we did not deserve it, when we didn't even realize we needed you, you were willing to give your all. Father, thank you for lessons like Stephen and Saul, Peter and Dorcas. Even we need to hear about the sorcerer how maybe we are playing games, religious games. Lord, thank you for the truth of these stories that don't just make us smarter, but they make us more real. And we want to be real for you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.